0: Psychology in
1: Seattle.
0: So, Rebecca, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, and I thought I would ask you a question from an anonymous patron, and then you could give us some updates on what you've been up to in the past couple of months. What do you say?
1: I'm I'm down.
0: This is the Psychology in Seattle Whoa. podcast. <laughs> you what? What happened?
1: <laughs> I don't know. This crazy noise just happened.
0: This crazy noise just happened.
1: Yeah. Did you I hear it? No. Okay. All right. I
0: mean, I heard. I heard the crazy noise that you emitted from your mouth.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll try. It. This
0: is Sorry. The <laughs> Calling You Sound Podcast. I'm your host, Doctor Kirkanda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca?
1: I'm Rebecca, and once again, I'm having technical difficulties. Well, it's, you know, it's hard these days.
0: Well, we're getting older. It's only going to get worse.
1: I am so far behind. So far.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, with age comes pros and cons. You get some mild wisdom and a ton of pain and difficulty <laughs> with technology. All right. This is an anonymous patron. They write, do you have any advice for family members of people who have psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder? Mm. My brother is psychopathic, and I'm absolutely terrified of him. Yeah. He, has, he, has been like this, he has been like this since he was a child.
1: Mm-hmm. He stabbed
0: another child in the first He constantly lies. He steals. He's violent. He commits criminal behavior, including seriously assaulting and threatening to kill my father. Mm-hmm. But he has always talked his way out of serious consequences or has been outright protected from them. He is very charming and almost universally well-liked by people who haven't known him long. He's superficial. He's glib and charming to make matters worse. Most of my family members protect and enable him, especially my mother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I understand why to some degree, because when I can't avoid being around my brother, I often oftentimes find myself engaging in friendly behavior with him in order to not set him off. Right. I feel like we're all trying to create the world, uh, as he would like it in order to protect ourselves from him. However, this leaves me feeling very much alone, and I have been driven to question my own sanity. Thankfully, my husband reminds me that I am not alone. I would love to hear your thoughts. I am sad that this has created a rift between me and the rest of the family due to my position. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I just read an article on this about um, parenting kids with uh, reactive attachment disorder. And how the siblings have basically been through domestic violence, but nobody talks about it, and they should be treated it as, as if they're domestic violence uh, survivors. And how if a parent had behaved in the way that their sibling had behaved, you know, that parent would be removed from the house. But it's so much more complicated with um, a sibling. So yeah, I would say. I mean, sometimes it's horrible, but sometimes when you have Uh, a family member that's this awful, all you can do is avoid them knowing that, you know, your family may not be willing to make the same choice and that's incredibly painful, but you, you have to take care of yourself.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what in a nutshell, that's what I would say too. Yeah. It's awful uh, to be around people like this. Um, The way you describe this anonymous patron, I'm quite convinced the person in all likelihood, would be labeled as psychopathic if evaluated by a qualified clinician. Um, you know, you give all the signs. Since, uh, since childhood, he seemed to be this way from an early life, from an early time in his life. He lies all the time. He steals. He's violent. He intimidates. But then he's very superficial and glib and charming with other people. And-
1: Insert Ted Bundy here. I mean, isn't that like, I mean, the, the exact, Description of Ted Bundy right there, yeah, yeah. right.
0: Uh, and most psychopaths never kill anybody, but uh, but the personality type is definitely um, represented in Ted Bundy for sure. And uh, it's awful, yeah, to be around people like this is truly awful. I've been there before, not in my family, but in my um, personal life and at work. And there is, it's it's traumatic. I. I actually have PTSD from certain individuals in my life who were like this and I was close to them. And the emotional abuse, the terror that you feel just being around them, that they just have this way of pulling you in and then making you feel terrified. It's its a very, very scary, destabilizing kind of thing. And as you said, Rebecca, it's, you know, uh people will... And as you said, anonymous patron, uh, when you're when you're sort of forced, when you feel forced to be close to someone like this, you end up just doing whatever they say and and creating because when you do that, then your life is so much more safer, and your your life is better because it's like if you're you know it's like if you're living next to a volcano, you have to like take certain precautions, like you can't maybe build a house very long or. You can't like not wear shoes or something. You know, you have to, you have to modify your life because of the danger. And the thing is, is if you just got away from the volcano, you wouldn't have to do any of those things anymore. But if you feel like you're forced, like it's your own child or you're married or it's your father or it's your boss or whatever it it's. It, you end up just, because the thing is, is in the brain. So an honest patron, you're looking at your mother and you're like, why is she doing this? Well, she has a total selfish choice. There's no, there's no good answer. She either completely rejects her son and, you know, gets away from him, which is abhorrent to almost every parent on the
1: planet. Right. And society is going to judge, you know, how can you abandon your child? Right.
0: right. Yeah. So, So you either have to abandon and feel shame and, and pain. And then even then, if you do sort of separate yourself that, you know, what if the child manages to get back into your life? It's like, why go through the trouble? So you have that choice, which is terrible, or you got to be close. And the only way you can be close is if you go into denial, you know, Mm -hmm. people often will say, it's like, well, you know, that person's in denial. They need to change that. Deni- true denial, you can't change. True denial is you don't even know what's happening. And your brain does this to you to protect yourself. So you're in a situation that is terrifying. You know, the analogy is, is you're living next to the volcano and, and you know, there's no, you feel like there's no other option. So you just start to believe that, well, volcanoes are normal and lava is normal and, and terror is normal. And you, you twist your entire world around that. When someone says something like, well, you know, your son is a little unreasonable sometimes. You don't have to put up with that. You just sort of frame that in this squishy way, like, well, you know, every everyone has their pros and cons, or, you know, you don't really know him. or And you do that because your brain needs to, because if you don't, then every day you wake up and you're like, why am I in this? Oh, that's right. I have to be. Why am I that, in this? Oh, that's right. Is that it.
1: cognitive dissonance? What is that? There's a name for that level of...
0: Well... Freud called it denial. I like that. Uh, cognitive cognitive dissonance is related for sure. You know, when you have two, I mean, cognitive dissonance is more like, um, the, uh, when you have two opposing naturally opposing, well, I'm going to attempt a a definition. (laughs) Essentially you have two opposing ideas that can't really, um, reconcile themselves. And so you end up you know, kind of not really staying in the ambiguity and just sort of choose one or the other. I don't know. I'm probably screwing it up anyway. But yeah, I totally agree with you, Rebecca, that one of the best answers that I've found personally, and no one can tell you anonymous patron what you're supposed to do. But for me personally, and apparently for Rebecca is distance. You have to, you just have to get distance because there's no way to manage people like this. You can't you can't walk up to Ted Bundy and see and say, stop being a Ted, Bund- stop being a Ted Bundy, you know? And if you're going to be close to people like this, there's no way to avoid being abused. That's the thing I want to tell people is if you, the longer, I've experimented in my personal life with, with things like this, where I'm like, okay, well, what if I did this? Okay, what if I, what if I did that? What if I did this? And, you know, what if I avoided these topics? What if I avoided these kinds of social situations? What if I, as soon as I see a sign of this happening, what if I extract myself? And I'm here to tell you nothing worked. It being anywhere near this person at whatever degree eventually led to some sort of emotional abuse. Just, it just happens.
1: And it's hard when you're the person that's standing up and saying, Hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. I mean, that's, you know, it, what's hard is when you're both making the strong choice and you get a lot of judgment from it for your family or people in general don't understand. How can you not be close to your brother? Um, and so you have to kind of live with that judgment or just leaving stuff out, you know, like. Um, and I know it's hard with my family member. That's really difficult. And, you know, people just say, like, well, why aren't they around? And I have to you know, sometimes I choose when I have the energy to explain and when I don't. Yeah. Um, because it's it's hard to always kind of be the bearer of bad news or, you know, the person in the family system that's saying, hey, this isn't doable for me. I, I can't do this anymore. I can't pretend like this is normal. I can't pretend like we're a normal family. You know, that that's not what's happening here.
0: Do you care to share or is that too personal?
1: I think I should not share at this point <laughs> in my family system. Uh, um, fair enough, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's a loss, too. Uh, not only is it hard, as you say, Rebecca, to deal with the ongoing uh, relationships with people that you want to be connected to who are upset or confused or pressuring you to relent on your policy of of off from this person, but it's also a loss, uh, not only from the person that you were connected to, which you might have actually some affinity for and some love for, but all the people and opportunities that you're cutting yourself off from if they're in your family or whatever social group. And so, right. um,
1: you might lose access to family gatherings or, you know, this kind of perception of what family is. Suddenly you're on the outside of that and that can be really painful.
0: But, man, is it fucking worth it? I mean, like to not have to deal because the i 've noticed as i 've gotten older i i've more and more become aware of how my body reacts emotionally to life, which is sounds like a fundamental knowledge, but you know isn 't necessarily for an American male, and one of the things that i've realized is that i I have this um intense stress reaction to traumatizing, abusive people.
1: (laughs) It really gets under your skin.
0: Yeah, like literally. And I will become different physiologically. And I need to turn to things to cope that are not, you know, healthy. And I need to... uh, This
1: is why people drink at family gatherings.
0: Right. (laughs)
1: Because you're just trying to
0: numb the pain
1: yeah you're just trying to get through
0: right so I mean not everyone drinks at family gatherings for that reason but you know it's one of the reasons I suppose and uh yeah and I realized that it would destabilize my body and my emotional system to the point where I would be reeling for like a week just after like one contact with these people and I realized like, okay, I'm getting older and I have the power and the privilege to engineer my life the way I want it to and I'll be damned if I'm gonna allow this to happen anymore. And so I just, but the thing that I did actually is you have to do kind of a long campaign. You can't really, or at least this is how I did it, is because if you just suddenly cut off, it's more jarring to everyone involved and they will uh, react, I think, In a way that kind of compounds the issue, and so what I did is I just said, "Okay, you know, five-year plan here. Literally, here, here's my plan. I'm, I'm gonna very slowly back my way out of this door, uh, to the point where uh, there won't really necessarily, no one really noticed is the thing. I know at least no one said anything to me, you know. And it felt good. It felt good to do that.
1: And it. That being said, if you need to cut and run, that's also valid. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Like not everybody um, can right. do that. And and sometimes I know for me, like something just at one event happened and I was like, oh, I'm done. Like it was just kind of super clear all of a sudden after years of hemming and hawing and reading articles and, you know, trying to decide the best thing to do one event was just like oh this is never going to get better wow i'm allowed to just be done and yeah. it was yeah
0: have you ever regretted it
1: uh no it's been really hard um no. you know and it's impacted everybody but you know i, I had to do it And, you know, sometimes when you bring another person into the story, like if you have kids or suddenly a partner has to participate in it or whatever, um, it can be even clearer of like, oh, this is crazy. (laughs) This is just plain crazy. And uh, my energy can go elsewhere. I don't have to do this.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're on this planet once and... If you're going to, you're going to spend like, you know, 10% of your life subjecting yourself to something that you don't have to, it just, it's um, bullshit. So absolutely. Um, so I have one case and then we'll take a break and we'll talk about what's been going on in your life here. So this is from 2004, Donna Roth. This is a a case from um, the internet that I read. Donna Roth was getting a divorce and she fell in love with her lawyer. And her lawyer was married at the time.
1: I would never fall in love with a lawyer. I just want to say that. (laughs) Straight up.
0: Uh, Donna was seeing a psychologist, Dr. Darlene Williams. Dr. Darlene Williams reportedly encouraged the relationship as being good for Donna's emotional health. What? Uh, Well, so does that surprise you that a therapist would encourage someone to have an affair? Because it was good for
1: them. Yes.
0: It doesn't surprise me. It I, doesn't. No, I've seen this before. I really it so, was so I mean it on the surface it sounds ridiculous, but the buildup is usually the thing. So someone comes in, so Donna goes into therapy and she is in a really bad marriage. You know, she um she hates her husband. It's been years. And it's very common for therapists to counter-transferentially uh, lock into that and desire that the client actually get a divorce. It's very, very common for therapists. Not
1: that the client have a divorce, but that the therapist says, yes, have an affair with a married man.
0: But here's the thing. This is the progression. This is how oh, sorry. Without, without listening and understanding countertransference and understanding the frame of therapy and understanding what's therapeutic, a lot of therapists will actively encourage their clients to get a divorce. Out, you know, it's one thing to kind of think it, like, ah, oh, maybe you should get a divorce. Another thing to like actively say, yes, I think you should get a divorce, which is actually something that I've I never do with clients. Um, I did in the beginning of my career on accident a couple of times, and it just it just never worked out well for, for anybody. Um, it's a big decision that should be explored in therapy. And if a client decides to get divorced, then by all means, I'm behind them 110%. But it's, but what, who the, how the fuck am I supposed to, you were supposed to do? That's the thing.
1: I always say that clients will look at me and be like, should I get a divorce? And I'm like, you're the one that lives your life 24 <laughs> seven. I yeah. have no place, right? I have Whatever no choice idea. you make, I'll support you. But yeah. I, this is interesting because a client just came back into therapy and she said that the way I said it to her about whether or not she should get her divorce was that she was taking her marriage vows very, very seriously. And she remembered me saying, maybe you don't need to take them that seriously. <laughs> I was like, Oh, that's so funny. That that's the way I phrased it. Or that's the way she heard it. Yeah, um, And she ended up getting a divorce, but any mahoo. Go
0: on. Right. So a lot of therapists, in my experience, will give in to their counter-transference and start to suggest courses of action or even really dominate You know, some dependent clients who are like, tell me what to do. And the therapist is like, well, this is what I think. And then, so then the therapist maybe did that. Dr. Williams seems like the sort of therapist that might do that, right? Might say like, yeah, maybe she should get divorced. And then you know, divorces usually take a long time. And then Donna, the client gets a lawyer. It's like, Oh, I got a lawyer. And the therapist is like, Oh, great. And then the client starts saying, you know, and I, you know, the lawyer, he asked me on a date and I, I I feel like he's a really great guy. And I, you know, I just feel like
1: never divorce, never date your divorce lawyer. I just want to say that straight (laughs) up,
0: but you know, (laughs) You know, maybe the, so, so maybe like you could understand though, a, um, a therapist encouraging someone to get out there and date again and like, right
1: and you, you know, you want them to feel alive and sexy and whatever. Um, Right. Okay. Go on. Right.
0: So, (laughs) you know, so it just so happens to be that you're, you're dating your, uh, your, your lawyer. Maybe Donna was also dating other people as well. And maybe the lawyer was just one of the people anyway. So yeah, I, I absolutely believe this, um, with the complaints that I get from listeners to this podcast about their therapist, it it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, the, the wide variety of professionalism in our field is just appalling anyway. So, uh, going on with this article. So the complaint read, so the, the, the client eventually filed a complaint, but, um, just a little snippet here. Dr. Williams appears to have encouraged and condoned the relationship as being a good thing, unquote. So the relationship between Donna and her divorce lawyer continued, but Donna became upset when she found out that he was not going to leave his wife. Yeah. <laughs> and she threatened suicide to the Ooh. lawyer. Oh no. The lawyer notified her psychologist, Dr. Dylene Williams.
1: Oh God.
0: That's and a the story, and apparently the psychologist didn't do much in response, you know, to that uh, notification from the lawyer slash boyfriend.
1: Lawyer then, slash boyfriend. That's the best quote of all. Well, yeah. I want a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so uh, and Donna completed suicide.
1: Oh God.
0: Yeah. So the family sued the psychologist and the lawyer And I couldn't actually find what the court decided, but what do you think?
1: Well, first off, I think as a lawyer, you can't ethically date your client. I don't don't
0: know if they have those.
1: I believe that they, you know, I'm married to a lawyer. Um,
0: Well, you should ask her.
1: I'm going to get to the bottom of this.
0: Well, I'm sure it's frowned upon, but like, can you lose your license if you date?
1: I think it's severely frowned upon because just like in our field, you can't treat a family member. Um, It's, you know, your, your judgment is compromised, but I will, I'll get back to you on this from the official. And I should say that the law journal also produces these kinds of vignettes of reasons that people have been disbarred. Um, So I can, I can really find the answer, but okay. Okay. So, but what's the question? I got so distracted.
0: Um, well, find out exactly what would happen because...
1: Okay. Will uh, they I, get disbarred?
0: Yeah. Um okay. Is it likely or something? Um, so, yeah. Uh, f- well, for the therapist side of things, you know, that's what we're focusing on here is one, the therapist was encouraging the relationship, which we've already discussed. But then the lawyer calls up. So essentially it's like, imagine one of your clients boyfriends calls up and says uh your client my girlfriend is suicidal and then you know what do you do
1: so we're in duty like we gotta do something right so we reach out to the client
0: right we're responsible for responding in a reasonable fashion whatever that means and uh given that these kinds of disclosures don't usually happen very frequently. You know, like how often have you had a collateral contact call you out of the blue, having never talked with them before, saying that one of your clients is suicidal? Has that ever happened to you before?
1: This has only happened to me in terms of an emergency room social worker calling me and saying your client is currently in the ER due to a suicide attempt and you're listed as the last therapist usually that person hasn't been into therapy for a while. Um, So, you know, I have to like go through my records and, you know, say, okay, the last time they were in was three months ago and here's what I know. And um, yeah, it's, but it's like even messy from that place. Um, Let alone, I've never knock on wood, gotten a call like this.
0: Right. I haven't either. So I would imagine that if I did, especially after reading a lot of these cases that seem to start this way and then end badly, I would probably go a little overboard with my reaction. Now, a lot of people out there, young therapists, novice therapists, get freaked out because they're like, well, how am I supposed to control what my client does? And that's not, you aren't. You you aren't responsible for controlling what your client does. But what we are, are responsible for is responding reasonably, which can include, calling the client and saying, Hey, I need to talk with you. Someone just called me. I need to see you right away. Or let's talk over the phone and let's do a suicide assessment here. Uh, or, and like, or would
1: you call the cops and do a safety check at that point?
0: Not from that. So okay. this is what I, if I was on a ethics board or, you know, a judge or whatever, would this is how I would, this is the line that I'd be looking for. I'd be looking for a clinician who immediately reached out to the client. I'd be looking for a counselor who upon if they didn't get in contact with. So say, you know, you call the client, the client doesn't respond. Well, then you got to escalate. Right. Then you got to call, you know, someone who might know like a family member or something. And that might involve breaking confidentiality because you don't have an ROI, but that would. I think that justifies it on some level. Um, if you, especially if you give it like 24 hours for the client to, to respond, and also if you sort of limit your words, like you call, I guess you might be able to find their ex uh, spouse, or you call the lawyer back. For example, you say like, "Well, how do you know? Like, where is she? Can you tell her to call? You like just do something to get in contact with her, and then once you do contact her, then just do a thorough enough assessment as to whether or not she's at risk. And if she's like, um, you know, yeah, I'm kind of on the fence, then you immediately go into a safety plan with her. But if she says something like, well, yeah, I told him I might hurt myself, but you know, I, I'm not actually, I don't have a plan. I'm not actually, I'm just really sad. And I just didn't know what to say. And then I would say, okay, well, let's meet again next week. So I, I think those are the things I'd be looking for. And I think if if you did all those things and the client still completed suicide, I think you're off the hook liability wise. So that's what I think. Um, and it sort of depends on what state you're in, because in Washington State, we're actually we actually have quite possibly the highest standard when it comes to this in the United mm-hmm. States because of the Peterson uh, mm-hmm. court case. So, um, and also we have other laws uh, that. Uh, I don't know that we just have, we're, we're just sort of at the high end of this kind of thing, but it doesn't mean that we're, you know, completely um, forced to do all these things. It's just, it doesn't take much is the thing in my mind. Anyway, so let's take she a break. None
1: of, oh, she, I just wanted to clarify. She yep. did none of that. She didn't reach out.
0: Right. From the, from what it sounds like in the article, she didn't do anything. She just was and like, she oh. lost her license. I don't know what happened to her. Uh, I don't know what happened to her. I suspect that she had some kind of problem because <laughs> it <laughs> went to the car. Anyway, so let's take a break and we get back. Let's get a check-in with you, Rebecca. What do you say?
1: I'm I'm ready.
0: All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. You can also find Rebecca on Twitter at what?
1: Uh, I'm at rbloomATR, but I'm much better on Instagram, which is rtext, r-t-e-x-t.
0: Wow, how'd you get that one?
1: I made it up because it's a spoof on um, T-Rex, but it's also rtext, like R words. It was a DJ name I came up with 20 years ago, and then with Twitter, I finally got a chance to use it.
0: DJR text in the house. That's me. So we're also giving away our second scholarship that's soon amazing. for $2,500. And it is the applications are due June 30th. We're getting a lot more applications this year or this time around. So that's nice, but it's going to mean that's going to be a hard choice. I'm guessing in the end, um, Also, you can buy Rebecca's books on Amazon. Name the name of your books. Isn't that one? There's
1: one. Maybe by the time this podcast comes up, it'll be out. So Vicarious Trauma Illustrated, I just got the proof yesterday. So it's like happening. Um, It'll be out in a matter of weeks. And currently we're at the end of May 2018. Uh, And there's also... Square the Circle, which is full of art therapy exercises. It's quite popular on the Amazon. And um, there's also Attunement, which is about attachment theory, but done visually.
0: Awesome. And you can buy my book, multi role Clinical Supervision, which doesn't have any art in it at all. Although there is one graph.
1: Ooh, I love a good infographic.
0: Yeah, the graph shows the distribution of my ratings of all of the supervisors that I've ever had in my, cool. career I've had like 17 ish supervisors and, uh, so, and I rated them all from one to five with five being like, you know, excellent supervisor who is like a true mentor taught me things. What made me feel safe. Um, you know, someone that I still think about every once in a while when I'm working and then you got middle of the road three, which is like mediocre, didn't really teach me anything, wasn't horrible, but just boring. And I just basically sat through the hour, twiddling my thumbs, hoping for it to be over soon. And then I gave the rating of one to supervisors who were actually abusive, you know, perhaps kind of psychopathic, like what we were talking about before, people who actively like to emotionally abuse people, not just me, but like lots of people around me. And I have PTSD. My hands get sweaty thinking about them kind of a thing. And the distribution is I have two people. I rated a five. Mm -hmm. I have three people. I rated a one and then I have, you know, what? 13 people I rated in the middle three or four, (laughs) which means that like, the vast majority of my supervisors were either, meh, well, not even just meh, but just like a complete waste of my time, essentially, <laughs> um, or abusive and traumatic for me, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, actually reflective of the research as well. They they find that like something like eighty five percent of supervisors rated by supervisees are either inadequate or abusive, harmful. So anyway, um, so what do you want to talk about today, Rebecca?
1: Well, I have just returned from RuPaul's DragCon in LA, a celebration of all things dragtastic and magical. And so I've come to report on the power of drag and performance and alchemy and costuming. And makeup.
0: <laughs> Report away. Tell us. So well, did, did you meet RuPaul?
1: Uh so there there's only meeting of RuPaul if you pay a large amount of money. We're uh, not large, but you've already paid to get in. But I think you pay you could pay another sixty or eighty dollars to come around the table and get a two second snapshot. Which I didn't feel like I personally needed. But every day at eleven RuPaul does a DJ set um, from this kind of epically high riser above a catwalk, and it was so fun. First off, it's all the music that I wanted to dance to, like you know, classic house and disco. But it was the most fun was watching people turn the corner because they hear the disco music and they're like, "Woo, fun!" And then they look up and they see that it's RuPaul DJing, and the reaction is kind of like you know, God is DJing for us. Like It was just, um, there was a lot of like celebrity crushing out. Like it was pretty, uh, people took it pretty seriously.
0: So, 11 a.m. or 11 p.m.?
1: 11 a.m., which is oh, like light. my dream. It's like my dream come true.
0: Because you don't have to stay up late.
1: You don't have to stay up late. Just when you feel like dancing at 11 a.m., it's happening <laughs> right there.
0: So what was it like?
1: It was really fun and kind of unexpectedly accessible. So I don't know how much people watch the show. So should I do like a little description or do we assume that people know what RuPaul's Drag Race is? Okay. Uh, So RuPaul's Drag Race is a reality TV show. It's in its 11th season. It's already had three bonus all-star Uh, seasons that ran so definitely there's been 14 seasons that you could have watched 10 episodes apiece and it's um, filmed in a classic uh, they kind of mashed up Project Runway with um, America's Next Top Model so there's many things that would be familiar but what's interesting is that if you've watched uh, Project Runway, RuPaul plays both roles. He's both in the workroom like Tang Gunn would be, but then he's in the full drag um, to be the judge at the end of the episode. So there's this kind of interesting dichotomy playing throughout the whole thing. And then there are 10 to 15 drag queens um, from around North America Uh, who, you know, there's different challenges. There's comedy challenges and fashion challenges and makeup makeover challenges. Um, And they slowly get voted off and you get very connected to your favorite queen. Um, And then eventually there's a like lip sync for your life, uh, you know, finale, which is actually not my favorite episode. I'm much more like the episodes in the middle where there's lots of contestants. I've learned over the years, I don't actually care who wins. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: it seems sort of arbitrary, right? It's like, how do you really know who's better as an overall queen, right?
1: Right. And it's also that there are these huge personalities that growing up in gay culture, I just miss these types of, of people who are funny, or really bitchy, or really giving, or really talented seamstresses and makeup artists, and just make these outrageous costumes that are based in femininity, but not any, you know, it's like Bob Mackie on steroids, right, it's just like, the costumes can get so over the top and amazing, Um, and so it's just a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that's interesting you say that, it, that you miss it because in the 80s and 90s, to me, the gay community, gay culture on Capitol Hill in Seattle uh, was diverse, but it had a, it, it gravitated or there was a certain, you know, uh, orbit around Linda's, uh, you know, drag nights or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. You know. Well, for me, it was neighbors drag night. But.
0: Oh, okay. Well, didn't Lin, didn't Linda's or Julia's Linda's? Linda's? Did they?
1: They had. I don't know. I went to neighbors. Clearly, okay. we were in different camps at this point. But that's okay. I went okay. to
0: neighbors too, uh, and uh, uh, for sure in the early nineties when it was uh, anyway. But um, and how with the wonderful result of all of our advocacy and political work to make gay LGBTQ people accepted and, you know, given rights and not, you know, killed in the streets, it's become normalized, you know, uh, gay couples have kids and they go to PTA meetings and, uh, they're regular, you know, frumpy American Seattle people, you know, and the, uh, the necessity or the sort of, um, highlighting of queen culture might, be less central to people's lives the way that it used to be is that, well, is that
1: I mean I would also say and no one can afford to live on Capitol Hill anymore like the Capitol Hill is now the least gay neighborhood of any neighborhood in Seattle and now at least for lesbians all the lesbians now live in burien like so this way in which there used to be like a central core hub and you could like walk from your dingy you, studio apartment to neighbors and kind of enter into this crazy world and you Know where people were just wearing what they found at Goodwill and had like stitched together themselves. Um, it, it felt really magic at the time, and it was yeah. so much and it felt subversive because it was about this illusion of you know becoming your feminine self for a night or becoming your masculine self.
0: And, um, uh, just this is it might be just one of the most horrible, <laughs> stupid questions that have ever left my mouth, but for Project what what's RuPaul's show called again? Drag Race. Drag Race. Some of them are trans and some of them aren't.
1: So he wants gay men on the show. And this has been an issue at times. People have come back for um like Jia Gunn came back for an All-Stars. They were pre-transition. I don't know if they were pre-hormones, but after someone has had uh any kind of boob or lower surgery, um I believe they can't be contestants anymore. Like he's really interested in gay men. What's funny is that they can have all other kinds of plastic surgery. Like people definitely have fake butts and they've had tons of work on their face. Um but it has been an issue at times and shows like pose show, you know, more of the transgender experience. Well, um, are
0: are some of the so there's gay men who are not yes. trans, right? They right. they like to be queens and yes. uh, and then you have trans gay men and then you have
1: trans women. Trans, have they trans, would be trans women. Trans, trans, sorry, <laughs> trans
0: women who are attracted to women or men doesn't really matter. And uh, so on RuPaul's show some of them aren't trans at all. Like they don't identify as, as women. They are likely just gay. Cis men.
1: Yes. Yeah. Drag queens. Yes. And,
0: uh, but some of them are, some of them are.
1: Some of them in some seasons, people have come out as trans and decide to leave the show or Gia Gunn came out as trans after the show and another contestant, Peppermint, came out as trans after the show, had top surgery and starred in Broadway um, in the uh, – what is it called? Our Town? It's, uh, um, it was a show based on the music of the Go-Go's. Um, so, like, and, they're and still part of the family. What?
0: What's RuPaul? Is RuPaul trans?
1: RuPaul or? is a gay man. And in fact, RuPaul no longer appears in public in drag. Uh Um, He's always in a suit now. He's always in boy clothes, as they say.
0: Yeah. Kind of like Boy George in some ways, I guess.
1: (laughs) Kind of like Boy George.
0: Because when Boy George in the 80s, he was always in what I guess could be argued is is, uh, queen outfits, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then in his more sophisticated later years, he, he would have like makeup on, but he would be in suits, like fancy suits.
1: And a big hat.
0: Yeah, yes. it was a big hat and, and shoulder pads.
1: It seems the best way to age is to yeah. be in a suit.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Uh, so, so you go to this, uh, you go to, oh, why do lesbians live in Burien? I mean, I, I thought they Because it's cheap. Oh, because I... I I mean, I knew they lived in West Seattle. Uh, they've they've always lived in West Seattle, right? I mean,
1: I'm, I'm sure they have.
0: Well, no, I remember thinking, like the Junction. I remember thinking that was like the other Capitol Hill for lesbians. Oh,
1: that's so funny. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, lesbians, two female incomes or one, you tend to go where the housing is still uh, cheap. So,
0: so yeah. Burien, is there you, is there like a uh, Lesbian bar in Burien now? I think
1: there's some spots to hang out, some gay spots, but they're they're about to have their third pride celebration in Burien, which I think says a lot.
0: It does say a lot. So, yeah, that's interesting. So one downtown, one Capitol Hill, and one Burien?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Yeah, Capitol Hill, is it's too expensive, and um, a lot of uh, techie people are moving there, right? Amazon people and whatnot. so I could see how it wouldn't be preferable to live there anymore. Um, hmm. So, uh, uh, okay. So what was the convention like? What was it like?
1: So it was so fun. So first off, there's all these catchphrases from the show and there's just huge banners of them everywhere or people are wearing t-shirts with all these inside jokes. And so you feel like you're with your people. Or some people are there in famous costumes from the show or dressed up as their favorite queens, which for some, like Trixie Mattel, can be, you know, an hour's worth of makeup to get the look, which is, you know, all about making your eyes look four times bigger than they actually are. And putting on four pairs of fake eyelashes on the top and two pairs on the bottom and then putting the rhinestones on them. You know, I mean, it's just like kind of, there's a lot going on. Um, But the fun, so the first thing that happens on Saturday morning is there's kind of this pink carpet entry experience where the first it's all the queens who've won seasons, then it's the current reigning, then it's the current queens who are on the show, and then it's whatever queens are there. But it's just like the most outrageous fashion show you've ever seen um, of just you know, these just crazy outfits. And then there's tons of fun booths. I bought a lot of really fun, kitschy art. But you can also finally learn how to put on that lace front wig that you've heard so much about and see them all in person. You know, in this Instagram culture, it's like you see all these things, but to see them in person is kind of a different level. Um, and then there's all the, the fake boobs and the butt padding. <laughs> like anything you've ever had questions about, like how do they do that? It's all there. And then there are these stations, which could be anything from a table and a folding chair to a double-wide booth completely encased so you can't see the queen. And people are waiting up to three hours to get a signed picture with that person in a moment with them. Um, And so it's interesting to see, like, who's going where. And then there are these fun panels of, like... The judges have a panel. Um, We went to an interesting panel on queer comedy. Uh, So there's just like a lot of stuff to do. And then everyone's kind of wandering around. Like the judges are then wandering around. So one of the most, the judges that's on pretty often is this guy, Todrick Hall, who was an American Idol contestant. Um, And has a pretty successful dance music career. And he's just like ballistically talented. Like he can do it all. And he was wandering the floor. um, (laughs) And I saw him and I like totally fangirled. Like I could not put a sentence together. Like or even a word. And he even like locked eyes with me. Like hey middle-aged white lady. This would be your time to say something to me. And I still couldn't do it, and my son is kind of punching me, like "get it together." But it was just really weird. Like I don't think I expected to see him just like kind of out and about. Um,
0: what would you so like to have said to him?
1: I would like to say, uh, "You're a you're a triple threat. <laughs> you're amazing, and thanks for being super, super gay." And I just feel really lucky to live in a time where someone like that doesn't have to be closeted, can be that talented and just ballistically gay and their full selves. He's
0: a listener to the podcast, so maybe you just told him.
1: Maybe. Todd, Hall, if you're out there, I was that lady that froze Saturday. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, interesting. So didn't you have another thing you wanted to talk about as well? Or did that- uh,
1: uh, is it? Was it the book that the the that like Yeah. I saw the proof of my book yesterday that I've been working three years on.
0: Yeah, how did that feel?
1: That was amazing. It just like comes kind of unceremoniously in the mail. Like you just get this cardboard box and you open it, and there for the first time is your book. <laughs> it's just wild.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy.
1: So I leafed through it and then I got shy and I think I ate two chocolate bars like over the night. Like I was just like Oh my God, it's done. It's done.
0: <laughs> that's what you do, eat two chocolate bars?
1: Yeah, that's about as crazy as I get these days.
0: So I wanted to ask you a question, Rebecca, about an article that was in Psychology Today about five habits that can push your partner away. What, what do you mm. think we get into this?
1: I'd probably do them all. Okay, what are they?
0: Uh, well, yeah, I'm sure we all do. <laughs> Number one is too much criticism. What do you think about that? Is that something that people do?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, you know, some people call it nitpicking or nagging. Um, I know in my own relationship, I think I'm just being helpful, but the look I get is telling me I'm not being helpful.
0: (laughs) What's an example of that? Like dishes or...
1: Uh, You know, fashion choices. Like, so here's an example. We're all going down to LA and my wife brings like a like a trench coat, like a trench raincoat. And I was like, really? <laughs> like we're going on like a fun vacation and that's the jacket you want to bring? And then there was one day that everybody was doing different things and she was going outside and I was staying inside and she asked about my my fun jacket that I brought. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> you should have did what I said and brought a fun jacket instead of your weird trench coat which doesn't make any sense of why you would bring that coat.
0: Right. So the golden ratio for communication, according to Gottman, right, is 80% should be positive or, or neutral and only 20% should be critical, which sounds kind of a lot, on honestly. Um, but anyway, uh, that's five to one is the, uh, is the ratio there. Um, yeah, too much criticism for sure. Um, there's a lot of reasons for criticism. Uh, one being just having a liberal policy, I think of criticism. And another one is we're often, we often are critical. It's usually the tip of the iceberg to something more fundamental to us. Like, you know, what someone wears to LA on a fun trip is, is one thing, but like criticizing someone for working too much, for example, it's like, man, you work too much. Well, usually what that means is I miss you is usually what that means. And I work with people and I'm sure you do too, Rebecca, on getting to those fundamentals and communicating the fundamental and not letting that fundamental evolve into something like criticism, which could be very destructive and counterproductive to what you want. When you miss someone, you want contact with them. You don't want to push them away. Um, Number two is uneven match of argument or relationship talk skills, uneven match of argument skills or relationship talk skills. What do you think that means?
1: Uh, well i've seen this a lot where one person and this is common in a relationship. One person is very verbal and the other person is not, or one person has some training in how to communicate, or one person thinks they have training in how to communicate <laughs> and wants to speak in a certain style um i I assume that's what that means. What do you think it means
0: uh let's see when one member of the couple is a far better communicator about emotional issues, yeah, I guess so um yeah, I, I could see. I don't know how that results in pushing people away. I mean, it's just kind of a problem. Number three, lack of empathy to emotional distress. What do you think about that one? Push, you know, something that people do to push people away.
1: Yeah, I would say definitely that. You know, if you, I think all relationships experience, you know, kind of a fatigue. And then when your partner really miss, really needs you and you miss that cue because you're just, like, zoned out again, um, I could definitely see that. And I think that, you know, that gets even more intense when you have kids or you're caring for someone in your family that's sick and you have that much less to give. Um, if you listen to any of Beyonce's songs, this is a common theme. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that.
0: Number four, ignoring important complaints. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that one?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that goes probably to the first one. It's like, are you just being nagged or is there something that the other person really needs to change?
0: Yeah, and I think that when I think about the clients that I've worked with, and I guess even in my personal life, I think it's a wonderful piece of advice to say, look, when your partner complains about something important, really make sure you pay attention to that. But in my experience, that's really hard to do when you have a fundamental problem with your relationship to begin with. And so if any, I feel like if anyone out there feels like my partner doesn't really listen to my important complaints, or sometimes I have a hard time remembering to, to, account for this ongoing complaint that my partner had. I would look toward resentment that's built up over something, a a lot of hurt. I would look toward general distance that is, that's become habitual between the two people. You know, just because you're in a relationship quote unquote or married, it doesn't mean that you're still in love and it doesn't mean that you still really, really care for that person. And sometimes it takes couples therapy to, Fall back in love and to reestablish that connection and so um, if anyone's having trouble with that, I would say work on your connection and from that connection people will just tend not to ignore important complaints because they there's a part of their biology and psyche and soul that just can't help but to pay attention to what's going on in their partner number five is technoference do you suffer from that at all
1: oh yes I'd much rather get the Quick dopamine hit from my phone, then actually have to connect to my partner. I'm assuming that's what that means.
0: Yeah, I, I, assume, I assume. I mean, I don't think it means like there's a robot that literally like. <laughs> I wish. Oh boy, technoference once again. <laughs> my robot is sitting in between us on the couch. Technoference. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think certain people are more prone to this sort of thing. And it can absolutely become a habit that the practices that I've seen people do are like when you go to dinner, you just put your phone on silent. You know, you don't some people will, will like they'll go to dinner with their spouse and they'll just have their phone just sitting right on the table. And every time they get a notification, you know, you can't help but to kind of look. And I mean, unless there's something of an emergency nature, like the kids are trouble and the babysitter has to contact you. Um, then I recommend people putting the phone on silent or even just like mundane things like, okay, it's eight o'clock. Me and my spouse are going to watch RuPaul's TV show and I'm going to silence my phone or I'm going to leave my phone in the other room because even though I'm just watching TV, this is kind of an intimate moment that we do where we watch TV together and I, I don't want to to be on my device. I want to be in the room and I want to be interactive. So I think that's, it's not a bad thing to look at. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I just thought I would go over that thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, it's really hard to make time to connect to your partner. I mean, the flip side of all of this is like, do you have a date night? Do you have things that you still enjoy doing together? You know, do you have family meetings? Like how do you connect? Um, when it can be really hard to make the time to do that.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. Again, just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean you're in a relationship. You have to work on it. You have to keep it alive. And I feel like most people want to, but because of unresolved resentment, it's they, they just don't feel like they have the energy for it. And then you just slowly drift apart. So... Sometimes it's harder than just saying, okay, today I'm going to dedicate myself to my marriage. Sometimes it's like, I'm going to have to say some shit that I've wanted to say to my spouse and have them respond in a caring way that, and I don't, I don't really know if they can do that. And like I said, couples therapy can help with that. Um,
1: Or even a couple's weekend, like we just did the hold me tight weekend Oh, and it was good. I mean, you know, sometimes you just need a tune up.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'm teaching applied couple therapy next quarter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I uh, one of our assigned books is "Hold Me Tight" by Sue Johnson.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh,
0: yeah. Wonderful attachment-based EFT stuff is is really great stuff. It's the model that I gravitated towards as a couple therapist myself without knowing it. Uh, what mm-hmm. when I when I learned about EFT, I was like, oh yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so I it's a it's a And I think couples actually trained me to do that. You know, working with so many couples over 20 plus years, you just slowly kind of learn like what, what works and what doesn't. And
1: right. And people want to get better. I mean, that's what I find in my work in general. And I don't do couples work, but people want to learn the skills to get better and hold me tight makes it seem possible.
0: Why don't you do couples work?
1: uh (laughs) I'm not very good at it I'm not good at tracking two people um I'm not good at holding the space I'm not I'm not good at it I'm just not good I think it probably has a lot to do with being an only child of a single mother and like not seeing a lot of couple time or that's the excuse I tell myself um I, I thought you yeah. had
0: siblings. I thought you had siblings.
1: I have a half sibling who's 16 years younger. Oh. So we've never lived in the same house.
0: So when I saw childhood pictures of you, it was with cousins or something? Because I remember there being a lot of other people your age. It
1: must have been cousins. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Did you have cousins that lived nearby?
1: I don't. I was a super only child. In fact, on one side, I'm the only child of an entire generation. Wow. Yeah. yeah they're, so... They're yeah. 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 I, I kind of had a weird, well, we could go on forever discussing my childhood, but we won't.
0: That's totally not what I thought. You seem like the sort of person who came from a larger family. With
1: That's them. really funny to hear you say that. And I'm going to play this moment over for some people who say to me that I am the most only child ever. What makes me seem like not an only child?
0: well you're sociable <laughs> i mean only only kids can be sociable that's not you know but you give a vibe of uh, as a sort of person who doesn't mind chaos like when you grow up like i did with three siblings you just get used to chaos you can't you can't avoid it like you can't control your environment the way you can if you're an only kid mm-hmm. i think it acclimates you to just coping or dealing with social chaos anyway. And I'm sure there's been studies on this and I I might even just be um, spouting ridiculous claims that actually aren't supported by science, but I don't know. You just give the vibe of someone who came from a larger family. Plus like you're my age and most people our age come from at least families of two or three, you know?
1: Yeah. I think the reason I can handle chaos is that I grew up in San Francisco in the seventies. Okay. Um, and there was a lot of like, like, you just got to go with this. Like, is there going to be food tonight? You know, it's just like, cause the adults were all uh, super loony tunes. So oh, really? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like the, yeah I had a, the I think, right? I think that my third grade teacher was drinking beer in class every day. Wow.
0: What yeah. part of San Francisco?
1: Uh, I grew up in the avenues, and then my dad lived in the Mission back when it was rough, like when, um, yeah. So, kind of a kooky, kooky. But I, but it's funny that you say that. It seems like I could handle chaos because when I worked at Asian Counseling and Referral Service, I was pushed to the limit because they would do these huge 140 people potlucks with people that were used to being in huge family systems like that. And I would have to leave the room. (laughs) Like I just could not handle like all the pushing and jostling and like, um, it was like, that was too far for me. So I do have a little bit.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, now that you say it, there are certain elements about you that seem like an only child, I suppose. Um, But... I've done research on sibling um, position and only children and personality. And the thing I'll say to everyone out there is there's almost nothing you can really say. Like people will say, Oh my God, you're such an only. And they've, you know, that's pretty easy to study. You take a bunch of only kids, you study their personality and you compare it to other groups of people and they find that there isn't much of a difference at all. Um, There are so many other, factors that contribute like the way you were raised for example um you know what your gender is your your the marginalization you went through your biology the uh, mistreatment you went through um where you grew up in the country when you grew up like there's so many other factors so um but you don't you know you don't come across like an annoying recluse this you don't come across like a stereotypical only child i'll say that
1: That's good to know. Yeah. Once again, I'll be recording this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what's sort of sad is that only children out there, like you've grown up, I mean, I'm getting the impression that people will say you act like an only child as an insult to you, which seems not fair to only children. Why should they, you know, why should they be stereotyped as somehow insufficient or lacking in some way? That doesn't seem fair.
1: Right. I mean, you know, we had our own struggles.
0: Well what what do you hear? What do people stereotype you as? An
1: uh you know that we are we're selfish. Um we can't handle a lot of criticism. I mean, I do get crazy about my personal space. Like I don't like things moved or touched. <laughs> so, I think but in you that way. See
0: how having a bunch of kids uh, Oh god. Uh would also cause that, right? Yeah. So
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh our only children are also stereotyped as being socially awkward because they didn't.
1: I can be socially awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a
0: lot of uh, the thing that you definitely see in family therapy is only kids tend to talk like adults much faster.
1: That I have, and that I see in my son too. And people will say that about him
0: because he's an only, and yeah, because you're you're social around adults, yeah. yeah. And, but when you're like with me, for example, I never talked like an adult because my two older siblings were like six years, six or seven years older than me. And not only um, did I not have to talk like an adult, but they actually, they actually talked for me a lot. Oh, wow. And so um, I just didn't have to say much at all. And they were also really outgoing and, and um, energetic, my older brothers. Mm -hmm. And so for the first, you know, five years of my life, I was, I was extremely quiet because, and in my own world, as I said, because um, I just, there, I had, there, there's my parents, then my brother and sister, and then lonely the old me, you know? Mm-hmm. So I just sort of existed as this like quiet appendage to the family of four, you know? Interesting. Yeah. And then once I started talking, apparently I wouldn't shut up. So, <laughs>
1: This is the Kirk I know now.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not a quiet person. Um, all right. Well, I'll let you go. I think you have to get back to work today, don't you?
1: Yeah, at some point.
0: Yeah. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Uh, thanks for joining me, Rebecca. This was fun.
1: It was fun.
0: And please take care of yourself because why, Rebecca?
1: There's an inner drag persona that needs to come out and be nurtured. So you got to find it.
0: What does that mean? Like, how do we find that?
1: Well, you know, you start playing around. Wigs, yeah. hats, gloves, scarves.
0: What's the mentality, though? Like, what's the persona part of it?
1: You got to find it. And once you get dressed up, then, that's, then you find it. Okay. It doesn't just happen.
0: Yeah. And then because you deserve it, right?
1: Because you deserve it. <laughs>